Thank you for that beautiful prayer. I hope you could pray it with them as they sung it. I hope you pay attention to the uh, focus on the marriage uh, promotion. I, I know when we've got a sign-up thing, our tendency is uh, February 27th, I'm good. I've got a, almost a month. I can do that some other time. Uh, I, I just want to implore you, uh, treat Valentine's Day as your deadline. All right? You remember that, Valentine's Day? You got someone you love? Okay, what I want to do for Valentine's Day, I want to sign up for the Focus on Marriage Conference by Valentine's Day. Tell your spouse, this is, your, this is one of my gifts for Valentine's Day. One of my gifts, all right? Uh, now, you might want to communicate with your, your uh, spouse before you do that because they might do the same thing and, you know, uh, you want to make sure you're all on the same page. But uh, the, what will happen if you don't is that folks from other parts of our state will sign up. And, uh, and here you come, February 20th, thinking, all right, I'm going to, it's here at my church, I'm going to sign up. And I would hate to have to tell you, you can't come to this building, your church building, and be a part because it's filled. Do you know how that would just crush my heart to have to sell someone that? Uh, we've, uh, I've got word that we've had a couple um, come from uh, Goldsboro, signed up. A couple have come from Hickory, I believe, uh, signed up from Holly Springs. And, and so word's getting out. And so you only have maybe a good week where you've got opportunity to, to sign up. So uh, just uh, go to the website, greenpines.org. You can sign up, you can pay, and it's done, all right? Uh, so I just want to implore you toward that end. Now, uh, this day, we're starting our Seeking Him emphasis, uh, our church focus and studying about Seeking Him. Uh, you'll get in your small group Sunday school class uh, book uh, that'll look something like this. Uh, that will be your Sunday school book. Uh, for the next, uh, well, 12 weeks following uh, this, this Sunday. And so it's a 12-week study on seeking him. There'll be a little bit for you to read each day. I, you know, it looks intimidating. It really isn't. Um, it just looks bad, all right? It, it's just a few, few pages that you have to read every day and some questions to answer, all right? But it's not just going through a workbook and, and, and doing your homework. It is about the, the emphasis of seeking the Lord. We want to make sure that you've got a, a good habit and routine of seeking the Lord in your life, and we pray that will happen in your heart. Um, and uh, when you get together next Sunday, you'll uh, discuss what you've read and what I've talked about today. You'll discuss that next Sunday in your small group, okay? And so by that time, hopefully, you should be knowledgeable students in your small group and, and ready to discuss and Learn from each other what God is doing in your hearts. Now, I just want to encourage you right here. Don't miss the next 12 weeks. You'll just be all messed up. All right. I don't don't want you to be messed up. Take the next 12 weeks and and make a point to being here. They build on one another. uh, And I don't want you to miss out. Uh, I I don't know what you think of when you hear the word revival. Revival. when I, when I hear that word revival, I think of uh, every night of the week going to church. 
And I think of, because I was in a pastor's home, I think of good meals because they would take me along to whoever was, was uh, feeding the, the pastor for the week. And I think, okay, I'm going to get fed real good this week. Uh, I'd think about late nights coming back from church. I'd think about singing and, and special people coming in and singing solos and other things. And, and, I, and I would think about a preacher uh, that he would come and do some powerful, convicting messages. And I hope they weren't too convicting or else I might have to walk down the aisle or something and, and just really be embarrassed. And, and that was kind of my thought growing up. In fact, it was in one of these weeks that the Lord did speak to my heart and I uh, became a follower of, of Christ uh, in 1989. But I just want to just bring to your mind that that is not necessarily revival. Okay? That, those are a series of meetings where God may work or He may not work. But it's just that. It's a series of meetings. And so I want to introduce the idea of revival. I, I think, um, uh, you know, I think about growing up, we had a 73 LTD Ford that was, you know, we had it from the beginning. Had it all the way up. Uh, my sister inherited it and had it for several years of marriage. And that was the car we learned how to drive on. You know, it was, it was a boat with wheels and uh, it had that cruising uh, feel to it. But, you know, it's, uh, we took it to California and back and all kinds of stuff. And, but along the way, the engine died. And we had a mechanic that happened to love that car for whatever reasons. And he loved us. And he rebuilt an engine in that car. And we had a whole new life given to that car. That car had over 300,000 miles on it before it left our family. Um, you know, I think about that in action. And, and what we're talking about here, when we're talking about revival, we're talking about someone coming in and giving us a new engine. Giving us a new energy, a new drive, a new heart for the things of God. For what God cares about. Now, let me just share what, a little bit about re, what revival is not. It, it's not just evangelism, all right? Sometimes we think revival and we think synonymous with some evangelistic meetings, and that's not the case. Uh, now, when there is a reviving work among God's people, God uses his people to bring the lost to Christ. But it's not just evangelism, and it's not just emotionalism, all right? Sometimes we think of a revival speaker, and they are uh, red-faced and yelling, uh, probably 85% of the time. And we think, wow, they're just really emotional and that person's on fire and they're, boy, they got revival in their hearts and that's emotion. Okay? And a revival is not just emotionalism. It's not just stirring meetings and great preaching. It's not just excitement. Okay? You can have all kinds of exciting experiences. There can be electricity in the air. You can have your, your chills on your arm. Going up, but that doesn't mean that God is changing your heart and that there is a reviving work being done among his people. And it's not just an event, as I shared with you before. So what is revival? Well, one person has defined, defined revival as an extraordinary, extraordinary movement of the spirit of God among his people producing extraordinary re- results. Okay. That's just one definition. It's just you have had an incredible movement of God in your life and it's changed you for the rest of your life. And what's interesting is that there are periods in history where God has, not, has done that, not just with one person, but has done it among a nation. Has done it so that uh, the bulk of the people have are experiencing a powerful work of God. And that's when we talk about a national revival. 
Now, what are some characteristics that come? One is prayer, extraordinary prayer. Uh, I want to share with you about the what's called the New York Prayer Revival. It occurred in 1858 using, by, using a man by the name of Jeremiah Lamphere. He was a, a lay uh, missionary in, in the business world in New York. It was a time of financial crisis. Uh, there had been several years of unprecedented growth leading up to this, and speculation uh, was part of the, the mainstream there. Enormous wealth was being positioned, uh, but there was a great fall, a crash that occurred in 1857. The banks were closing and stocks were falling dramatically in October. In November, there's the presence of armed troops on Wall Street that kept a crowd of hunger distraught workers from breaking into the sub-treasury to steal $20 million from the vault. So that's the kind of setting it occurred in. And then September 23rd, 1857, Jeremiah Lamphere and the New York District became concerned about the well-being of the businessman. And so he just put an advertisement for a noontime prayer meeting. He got a second-story room in the North Dutch Reformed Church, and he went there and prayed for 30 minutes alone. Finally, a total of six people showed up to pray. The second week, 20 people came. By the fourth week, 40 people began to pray for prayer, or meet for prayer week, week, week. By October, a hundred men began meeting daily. Many of those were unbelievers. And then spontaneous noon prayer meetings began to appear across New York City. In six months, over 50,000 people were meeting daily at the noon hour for prayer. One man noted as he went from New York to Boston that every town he entered in had thousands gathered at noon every day in every church for concerted prayer. So one of the marks of a reviving work of God is an extraordinary prayer. But as well, there is an extraordinary conviction and repentance that takes place amongst God's people. Samuel Davies described the first great awakening and said this. Suddenly there's a deep general concern about eternal things spread through the country. Sinners started out of their slumbers, broke off from their vices, began to cry out. What shall we do to be saved? And made it the great business of their life to prepare for the world to come. Then the gospel seemed almighty and carried all before it. It pierced the very hearts of men with an irresistible power. I've seen thousands at once melted down under it, all eager to hear as for life, and hardly a dry eye to be seen among them. In the great Welsh revival, there was such a reforming work among God's people that hit the nation side that the police force had nothing to do. And so they joined and formed a quartet and sang. It had that effect among that nation. There is well a mark of revival as an extraordinary love and unity among his people. One professor, Roy Fish from Southwestern, has stated that undoubtedly the revival of 1858 did more to cement interdenominational relations than any other single factor in American church history up to that time. Then, a mark of revival is extraordinary worship. I made mention about the Welsh revival. There's a newspaper, the Western Mail, that was published in in, uh, November 10th, 1904, describing the Welsh revival. It said, a remarkable religious revival is now taking place in Lahore. For some days, a young man named Evan Roberts, a native of Lahore, has been causing great surprise at Mariah Chapel. 
The place has been besieged by dense crowds of people and unable to obtain admission. Such excitement has prevailed that the road on which the chapel is situated has been lined with people from end to end. Many who have disbelieved Christianity for years are returning to the fold of their younger days. One night, so great was the enthusiasm evoked by the young evangelist that after a sermon which lasted two hours, the vast congregation remained praying and singing until 2.30 in the morning. Shopkeepers are closing early in order to get a place in the chapel. Is that something? Well, in revival, not only is there extraordinary worship, there is an extraordinary witness and service that takes place amongst God's people. During the Second Great Awakening, the American Board of Commissioners for Foreign Missions was started. The American Bible Society was started. The first Sunday School Union was formed in Philadelphia in 1791. This was uh, a formation of Sunday School kind of as we know it today, but they reached the lost. Uh, That was the idea that if you had a child and you were a believing family, your child wasn't in Sunday School because you were the parents and you were were teaching them. The Sunday School was meant for those who had uh, families without believers and was there to reach them. And so this was born out of the spiritual awakening. During, uh, we also see a spiritual awakening among the lost people. That is a side effect that occurs. And in the 1770s, in the Great Awakening, we find that Methodists increased by 1,400%, while the population grew at 200%. The Baptists in Virginia, every church had meetings that lasted five to six hours, often all night. In three summer months of 1770, in three counties, there were recorded... Uh, 1,600, 1,800, and 800 conversions, a total of 3,200 conversions in three small counties and three months. During the prayer revival of 1858, in two years, one million people were converted when there was a total population of the United States of only 30 million. So if we were to see that equivalent today, with a population of 300 million, we would see 10 million people converted in two years. This is a touch of God that can occur. And some of you are thinking, well, you know what, Pastor, after you're talking about those services and long hours, I don't know if I want that. All right? Now listen, what I want you to understand is that behind this revival, if I was just to characterize it by anything, it is that God is working in our hearts so that we have a consuming desire To seek him. To have a consuming desire to seek him. This is something that has been a burden of my heart in my church for several months now. Some of you have been hearing me talk about this. That there are symptoms pervasive all throughout our church of people who do not seek God. Not, I mean, and I don't even talk about Nightdale. There's a point where this must begin in the house of God to seek him. So I want to take you to scripture. I hope that you can see the need for this. The fact of the matter is the nation is being lost. God's people are off somewhere. And they're not being effective in our nation. Let me just bring a few statistics to you about our nation. Tom Rainer has done a study several years ago, and he said of people born before 1951, 
the American evangelical church had seen 65% profess Christ as their savior, those born before 1951. 65% of them made a profession of Christ as their savior. Of those born between 1951 through 64, the church has reached 35%. Of those between 51 and 64, 35% had been reached in a profession for, for Christ. Of those born from 1964 to 1977, the church has reached 15% of that population. From those born from 64 to 77, that's, I'm including that 15% of us have been reached by the church for a profession of faith. And then the current rate of those born between 1978 to 1994, we will have reached 4%, 4%, 4% between 1978 and 1994. That means 96% of those children and grandchildren, friends, Colleagues will not know Christ. 96% of those born between 1978 and 1994. Some of those are our students, our youth. I am scared to consider what it is between 1995 to 2010. So how do you change? How does a nation change? I don't know how a nation changed other than revival and what God does, but I do know that it can start with one person, one person that seeks God, one person that loves God more than any other thing, one person that hates sin more than any other thing. That one person, the world has yet to see what God can do with such a person like that who is wholly sold out for him. There's a verse that you'll be memorizing this week. I forgot to mention that in that seeking him. Book, um, we encourage you to memorize verses along the way. I want to introduce you to it. It's Hosea chapter 10, verse 12. It says, Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap steadfast love, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord, that he may come and rain righteousness upon you. I think about that reigning righteousness upon you. That was a, uh, quoted in Amos as well. Martin Luther King would often talk about that, that. That righteousness would rain down and justice would rain down. This is a symptom of people who seek God. Sowing and reaping and breaking up fallow ground is not an instant process. It is something that happens over time. The first thing that you've got to do is break up your fallow ground. You've got to plow the field. You've got to break the hard, encrusted earth. Make it ready to receive seed. It is not an easy process. It requires toil, difficulty. When we are looking at seeking Him, the very first parts of this is going to be about breaking up fallow ground. And it will be painful. I pray it will be. I pray it will be for me. I pray it will be for you. Because you cannot seek God unless some old habits and ways of thinking are taken out. This has a lot to do with humility. Humility. It has a lot to do with forgiveness. 
has a lot to do with confession. I want to take you as our text this morning to Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 48. That was what you call a long introduction. All right? The text is Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 48. What you've got here is an example of someone who is seeking God. She's not named. She's not named. And she's given in contrast to a religious man who is named Simon. And I just want to look at this and learn some things about seeking him from this lady. Luke chapter 7, verse 36 through 48. As we read this passage, let's stand in honor of the word of God. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. Behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that she was reclining at table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment. And standing behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he counseled the larger debt. And he said to him, you have judged rightly. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, do you see this woman? I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she has not ceased to kiss my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she has anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. And he said to her, your sins are forgiven. You may be seated. This chapter is dealing with the large question of who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? The passage right previous to what we've read, the Pharisees are criticizing Jesus because he has a tendency to hang out with sinners. And he's in the partying life, I guess, with them. And they're saying, you know, why do you do this if you're a man of God? And Jesus answers them and says, you know what, it doesn't matter. John the Baptist was was not like that, but you, you did not receive him either. And then this passage is recorded for us. The Pharisee, this particular one who is... And that same party that has been criticizing Jesus for hanging out with sinners says, hey, why don't you hang out with me? And invites him to his house. And uh, you just need to know that it's not quite the same private affair as what you and I would experience when we invite someone over to our house. It was kind of open for fair game. Not everyone could eat, but folks could listen in. I mean, if I wanted to listen to a discussion, I'd go over to Simon's house and say, let's see what Jesus has to say. And, and so you had these folks that were bystanders out not necessarily eating, but just there watching. 
And the, the situation was such as that the tables were low. They didn't have chairs. They didn't utilize chairs like what we would use. But they would uh, lay on their sides with their heads, uh, shoulders toward the table, their feet away from the table. So if you can imagine spokes out from a wheel, their feet on the outside. And that was the situation they were in. Um, Jesus makes mention in this passage of several customary, respectful things that could have been done, such as washing the feet, kissing uh, this person as, as your guest, and, and then anointing their head with ointment. These things could have been done. They weren't necessarily had to be done, but it was a, it was a nice thing to do. Uh, but nonetheless, they were not done here. And we come to verse 37. The Bible says that there's this, this woman, never gives the name, just says a woman of the city who was a sinner. That was kind of code for that she was probably a prostitute. Um, that could very well have been her, her history. But I would just present to you that this woman has had some previous experience with Jesus. We do not know what. But there has been something about his ministry that has touched her to the point that she comes prepared with an alabaster flask with ointment. She is coming and she is preparing to bless Jesus somehow. So we know that there's been some kind of previous experience that she has had with either Jesus or his ministry. We do not know what. But she comes and brings this flask. And then verse 38, what I want to just see, show you in this passage, that seeking him is a drive. What you find in this woman's life, she is seeking Jesus and she does so with a drive. It is determined. It is a priority. It involves cost. For her to be there in a Pharisee's home, being a woman of bad repute, she is risking rejection. She's obviously not invited, and she's kind of on the side, and she can't quite get to Jesus, and all that she can get to is his feet. You understand what obstacles she's gone through just to get to that point? To be in a home of Pharisees where there's other folks who knew she knew she would be rejected. You know, it's tough for us to go to a room where we don't know anybody. So for some of you to come here today was a huge deal for you. But when you got to go somewhere where you know they won't like you is a tough task indeed. And that's what she does. Why? Because she has a drive. It is not a hobby. It is a passion of her heart done with determination. And so as she comes to verse 38, we see that she does so standing behind him at his feet, weeping. She began to wet his feet with her tears. Seeking him is not just a drive, it's not just determined, it's not just priority and involving this, this alabaster flask of ointment that could very well have been a year's worth of a day's labor, of a day labor, a year's worth of their wage. It could very well have been that. So it had all this involved. But then she comes to this moment and we find that seeking him is also emotional. It is emotional. Because if you are driven and you've got something that, that consumes you, who you are includes your heart. Includes your emotion, includes your priorities, your will, includes your brain. Your Tiger Woods, of all the things that could be said about him, you could say also that he is driven. He's driven in golf. It does involve his emotions. It does involve his discipline, his time, his drive. 
What if we were to be driven as he was and is in seeking God? How is it that anyone is more driven to get a little ball in a hole than we are about seeking God? And so, yes, it should involve our emotions. And as you see this woman, it's like she was trying to get to his head because that's the normal custom to anoint the head. But she realized, I can't get to his head. And his feet's all I've got. And his feet hasn't been washed. No one washed his feet. What will I do? His feet need to be washed. So you can imagine walking the streets of Jerusalem and all the the dust and, and that's there. And as she's there, her tears, she's been touched so much that she's just crying. And she realizes that as tears fall on her feet, that it leaves the, the, the water, dirt, trail on his feet. It's just, what would I do? And so she takes the glory of a woman, as what the Bible says, is her hair. And takes her hair and takes the most undignified part of a person's body in his feet and takes the most glorious part of her body and washes the most inglorious part of his body. With her tears, with her hair. And as she does so, she's just heaping scorn upon her because how dare a woman of ill repute touch a rabbi, touch a man. And so, you get to see the reaction here. We find verse 39. Now, when Pharisee, Simon, who invited him, saw this, he said to himself, if this man was really a prophet, because he's a prophet, he would have known what type of woman this was and would not allow her to be touching him because she's a sinner. And so he makes some quick judgments about Jesus. You see, I wanted to share with you what we can learn here about seeking him. Seeking him is not just a drive. Seeking him is not just emotional. I want you to understand, seeking him is for sinners. Seeking him is for sinners. The problem with Simon, the Pharisee, is he didn't see himself as a sinner. Why? Because he set up some nice rules that he could attain to. Okay, I want to be holy, I want to be pure. That means I don't touch and I don't hang out with people who are sinners. As long as I do that, I'm holy. As long as I don't eat the right or the wrong stuff, I'm holy. As long as I'm praying the right prayers at the right time, I'm holy. And he never saw holiness as part of his heart, but as just the external rules. Now, I want to share with you that the worst enemy to seeking him is your religion. Your religion is the worst enemy to seeking him. Let me share with you what I mean. I grew up in a youth group, um, and well-intentioned people taught me some things that were good, such as, if you're a good Christian, you don't listen to a certain type of music. I mean, you don't listen to ACDC. You don't listen to some of this stuff. Because after a while, they glorify Satan. If you play it backwards, then my goodness, you know. Uh, 
And so I was taught that. I was taught that, well, if you're a good Christian, there's some movies you don't watch. You don't watch R-rated movies. It's okay. I don't watch R-rated movies. And if you're a good Christian, there's some activities you don't do with the opposite sex until you're married. It's okay. Right? And so I have a checklist. And I grew up thinking, as long as I'm not watching R-rated movies, as long as I'm not listening to this type of music, as long as I'm not doing certain activities with the opposite sex, I'm okay. I'm holy. I'm a good Christian. What's the problem with that? Well, the problem with that is it highlights these sins. But it's like religion doesn't bring out pride. And so I can be prideful in the fact that I don't watch these movies and I don't listen to this, this type of music and I don't do these activities with the opposite sex. And so, hey, look at me. And you guys just really need to get your life straightened up here. I mean, you guys need to get it together. And ooh, I don't want to hang out with you. Because you got an ACDC pin on your jacket. Okay? That, that's it's well-intentioned. No, you shouldn't be listening to ACDC. All right? No, you shouldn't be doing some of these things. But the problem is not these things. The problem is in your heart that you're not seeking God. And what I was seeking was good moral upstanding with the people around me. But I wasn't seeking God. You understand the difference between those two? I don't want teenagers who are just concerned about whether they're doing something right and wrong. We want teenagers that seek God. We want children that are not just obedient to parents and are polite and well-mannered. We want children who know how to worship God, who know how to seek Him. And church members... I'm not so concerned on whether or not you are believing all the right stuff. And you say the Bible is an inerrant word of God, infallible. And I do believe these things. But I'm going to tell you that's not enough. We don't want church members who just are doing, dressing up right and singing right. And being here when they should be. We don't want church members who are just tithing. Because you'd be no different from the Pharisee. You see, seeking him is for sinners. And the one thing the woman got right was, I'm a sinner. And I need a savior. And I need someone to forgive me. And I believe that this Jesus is the type of person who is that person that can do that. And I will weep and I will wash his feet with my hair. And I will anoint his feet with the the oil that may have cost me a year's worth of salary. Because I'm putting all my chips in one basket. And that's the fact that I need a Savior. So interesting, verse 40, Jesus says this. He he knows. You know, the Pharisee is like, well, if he's really a prophet, he would be knowing these things about her. And so, so Jesus kind of trumps that and says, not only do I know these things about her, I know what you're thinking. Simon, I have something to say to you. Say it, teacher. And he gives this parable, verse 41. A money, a certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, denarii, all right? Think one and a half years worth of salary, all right? One and a half years worth of salary. Whatever that is, bam. That's how much money you owe. Think, oh, my goodness, all right? It'd take me a year and a half if I did nothing but pay this, not much less eat, all right? So that's what this guy owes. 
And so the other owed 50 denarii, think two months' salary. All right, it's not a, not a insignificant amount, but uh, pales in comparison. Two months' wages. And when they could not pay, he counseled the debt of both. Now, which of them will love him the more? Simon answered, the one, I suppose, for whom he counseled the larger debt. He said, you've judged rightly. And then turning to the woman. Now, know this. If he's turning to the woman, he's turning his back to who? Turns back to Simon. And all the while, he's turning his back to Simon. He's talking to Simon. <laughs> that could be a little disconcerting, wouldn't it? Uh, Green Pines, I've got a few things to say to you. you know. Simon, uh, do you see this woman? I entered your house. These are the things you didn't do. You didn't give me water for my feet, but she's wet my feet with tears. She's wiped, she wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from this time, she's not stopped kissing my feet. You did not anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, listen, I want you to understand the forgiveness that she had was not based on her love. Okay? It's not, that's not what he's saying. What he's saying instead is what she's been forgiven. And we know that she's been forgiven because she loves much. Now, notice what he says. But he who is forgiven little, loves little. Here's a principle here. You want to seek God with a greater passion? You want to, you want to have a great love for God? You may be thinking, you know what, there's a day and time in my life when it seemed like I love God so much more than I do now. Let me tell you why. It's because you've forgotten your sin. You think that you're good. You think that you've gotten it together. And you have not. You have not gotten it together. You see, Jesus has given us a principle. You want to love God more? You've got to know how much more you've been forgiven. Let me ask you, who was the greater sinner? The Pharisee or this unnamed woman? Pharisee would have said the unnamed woman. Jesus was saying, the Pharisee, because you still remain in your sin. You still remain in your sin. The problem was that the Pharisee never went to God and said, God, open my eyes and help me to see the sin of my heart. I hear testimonies from time to time that says, well, you know, I don't have that, that great Damascus Road testimony. I, you know, I wasn't a drug dealer. I wasn't a drunkard. I wasn't an alcoholic. I didn't beat my wife. I didn't beat my husband. I didn't beat my kids. You know, I wasn't beaten as a child. And, and, and I just grew up in a Christian home. And, you know, let me ask you, have you been forgiven of less? You have not been forgiven of less. Maybe the world doesn't recognize it because you didn't go to jail. But friends, you need to understand that pride is a heinous sin before God. And what we need to pray is say, God, help me to see the sin that is in my heart, that has been and that still remains in my heart. Help me to see how much indebted I am to you. I dare you to pray that. If you pray that, God will, I assure you, answer that prayer. He wants to answer that prayer. And as you see how God has forgiven you, a great love grows. 
a great love grows. Colossians 2, 6 says, Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk ye in him. How did you receive Christ? Was it not by recognizing that you are a sinner and you need a Savior? Guess what? You never leave that. Just as you receive Christ, you keep walking. Today, I'm a sinner that needs a Savior just as much today as I did in 1989. And I will. If the Lord allows 10, 15 more years, I'll still say the same. Just as I receive Christ, so walk ye in him. Just as I come in humility and say, God, forgive me of, of my sin. Just as I said in faith, God, it's not by my works, it's by your works that you saved me. Just as I receive Christ, I continue that same road. So it doesn't matter anymore. Well, you know, I'm a pastor. I study the word of God. I don't drink. I don't do these things. It makes no difference. It makes no difference. I still am dependent on the work of Christ. I trust wholly in that. John chapter 6 verse 37 says, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. You know what that tells me? That tells me that if you seek God, you seek Him with all your heart, He will not cast you out. You won't have a new work in your life, a love for God that grows day after day after day. You've got to seek Him with all your heart. Here's what I invite you to do. One, I, I think that we need to, for the next 90 days, ask God a few things. Ask God to take away the fear of revival in our life. Think, well, you know, Pastor, that may mean that I'm in church for five hours a night like you were talking about. You know what? I don't know about all that. But I'm going to tell you, you will not regret seeking God. You will not regret the time you spend in prayer. You will not regret the time that you seek Him in His Word. And I can assure you there's probably already been a multitude of activities you've regretted. You will not regret seeking God. Become a student of revival. I invite you to do your homework. I invite you to take the book, take the Bible, and search the Scriptures and ask God to speak to your heart to aggressively seek Him. And maybe we need to pray that God would make us an illustration of revival. That God can see us and that this world can see us in a determined drive to seek Him. That involves our emotions, that involves our finances, that involves our time because we're sinners. But then let's pray this. Well, we pray that God will make us an instrument of revival. As I've shared with you before, our hearts alone are not the only ones that need a reviving work of God. Our nation needs a reviving work of God. If God's going to do it, it has to start somewhere. It'll start among people who will pray for it, who will have a desire for it. I think about this. My, my grandparents, every day they would pray for God to do revival in our nation. Every day they would pray that. When we named our third child, the second, our first boy, Evan, is with the echoes of Evan Roberts of the Welsh Revival that was in our mind. Would God use us 
Would God use me? Would God use you to bring revival? You can walk out of here and live the same way you lived yesterday and the day before. And if you don't do and you don't see any changes in your life, you will die that way. Unless God does a change. If you wish to die that way, fine. But if before you die you wish to see God do a reviving work in you and through you, then I invite you to pray for it. To seek God. Because the sad alternative is that if you do not seek God, you're seeking yourself. Which one will you do when you walk out this morning? I invite you to pray this morning that you will seek God. Will you just do that? God, I want to seek you. I don't yet know exactly how, but I want to seek you. I want to love you. Help me to understand how indebted I am to you. I do it with a drive. Help me. Give me the strength. I invite you that as we sing, some of you don't need to sing. Some of you probably just need to pray. Some of you maybe shouldn't stand up and you just need to sit in your seat or get on your knees and pray. Don't pretend. Just do that. Pretending doesn't do any favors for anybody. Perhaps you need to come forward. I can pray with you. Or you can come to the altar and pray here. But don't pretend. Either you say to yourself, I will seek myself. Or you say to yourself, I will seek God. You've got to say one or the other. But say it. I'm going to ask Dr. Boozer to come forward as we're...